Texan, so when you hear y'all, please expect that. But I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for having me this summer. But far more than that, thank you for being the kind of people that you are. You are hospitable and kind. You are warm and loving. When I moved to the Boston area about two years ago, I was in desperate need for a place to heal. And you have been the people and the place God has chosen for me to heal. So thank you. Secondly, uh, I know some of you, but I don't know all of you. And I really want to. I really want to know you. And so, if you do me a favor, if you want to, slash will, are willing to, I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee or a meal. And I'd love to just exchange stories. I'd love to hear your story, and I'd love to share some of mine. And I'd just love to get to know you. And lastly, we have a Herculean task before us this morning. I did not know what I was signing up for when Dave asked me to preach. But apparently, I've got 20 minutes to tackle 18 verses of highly complex and controversial text this morning. And maybe we can do it. Maybe not. If I fail, you should talk to my boss and tell him to give me easier tasks. We want on the job. Um, but with this mighty task ahead, let's ask the Lord for his help. Again. Father, we thank you for these few short moments around your word. Would you speak to us? Would you change us? Would you make us the church of the cross, the people that you long for us to be? Would you speak to us corporately? Would you also speak to us individually this morning? Put something with each of our names on it. Speak to us. Change us. For the glory of the Son. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I want you to think back across your life. And I want you to think about all of the great teachers that you have ever had. What made them such a great teacher? As names and faces start popping into your memory, just think about the qualities and the characteristics that they have. What made them so great? What made them so impactful? What made them the kind of teacher that shaped your worldview and your understanding? that formed you and transformed you into the person you are. What makes a great teacher? And as you think back upon the names and the faces of the people who have served as great teachers, I bet three qualities begin to emerge in your mind of what made them such great teachers. First one is I bet they loved you. I bet they really loved you. The second thing is I bet they really loved what they taught. 
then the third thing that I bet made them a great teacher is that they just knew how to ask a great question. Because all great teachers ask great questions. But why is a question such a powerful pedagogical tool? The reason is because when we engage in honestly trying to tackle a question, it demands that we always reckon. We are demanded to reckon when we engage honestly with questions. We have to reckon with reality. We have to reckon with ourselves and what we actually believe. And if we're courageous enough, a great question will always demand that we reckon with God. And just like our forefather Jacob, who wrestled with the Lord, my hope for us this morning is that in the question that we are going to ask, that we would find ourselves wrestling with God. And that in our reckoning and in our wrestling, will be the product of our wrestling and reckon reckoning will be that we never walk on the earth the same again. That we would be transformed. That we would be different. That the Lord would change us. This morning, the scriptures is going to invite us to ask a good question this morning. The Apostle Paul, he's going to deploy four questions that will ultimately lead to the question, who will deliver you from your body of death? Who will deliver you from your body of death. How would you answer that question? Who will deliver you from your body of death? I want you to imagine yourself sitting in a movie theater. And in front of you is just you in the theater, you know? And in front of you is the huge movie screen. And I want you to just watch your life unfold for me. I want you to think about the actions and the behaviors that you participate in. I want you to think through the decisions that you make, the way that you navigate your resources, where your time and attention and energy point towards. And then if it would be possible, I want you to look at your internal life not just your external life. I want you to examine what are the things that spark anxiety and fear and shame within your inner being? What are the things that drive your decision-making emotions? Where does your mind's attention and your heart's affection point to? And then if you were sitting there in the movie theater, watching your life unfold, how would you say, how would that person answer the question? 
who will deliver them from their body of death. How would that person answer this question? Maybe some of us, our response would be, well, it's me. My striving, my accolades, and my achievements. Maybe for some of us, it's our religious practices. Maybe for some of us, it's if I obtain that kind of dream, that kind of life. Maybe it's your family. Maybe if I can get my family to be perfect, then I can save me from this body of death. Maybe it's our careers. How would that person answer the question, who will save me from this body of death? And this is the question that we need to reckon with this morning. So in order to tackle our text this morning, I just want us to give a fly-by overview of all that we have explored in Romans so far. That way we can situate this really complicated text for us this morning. So remember, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church, this vibrant and, and life-filled church in Rome. And Paul was writing with a specific pur purpose in mind. His goal was to get the, the, the support of this Roman church because Paul had a vision in mind for what he wanted to do. He wanted to see the gospel message take root in Spain. And he needed the Roman church and their support and their fellowship to do that very thing. He had never met this church before. And so preemptively for him to stir up their affections for him, he writes this, this letter. And he writes this letter trying to win over their support by unfolding his worldview for them. He, he's trying to unfold his theological worldview of saying, I know what God is doing, and let me tell you all about it. So the first 12 chapters of Romans unfolds what he believes God to be doing, and then the last four tell us how the Roman church is supposed to live in light of this reality. And the Apostle Paul, from his Jewish upbringing to his rabbinic training to his miraculous conversion to all of his missionary endeavors, he is fully convinced that he knows what God is doing in the world. And simply put, Paul believes that God is creating a new people of God, a new Israel woven together with Jews and Gentiles into one redeemed people. One redeemed people. And so chapter one is all about how the Gentiles are found unjust in God's sight, that God has revealed himself as creator God to even the Gentiles. He declares to them, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. The Gentile people have been 
decidedly unjust before God. But not just the Gentiles, also the Jewish people. Romans chapter 2. That the Jewish people are also unjust in God's sight because their hearts aren't right with God. He goes on to say, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of law, rather it's the change of heart produced by the Spirit. And then we get to Romans chapter 3, which we know so, so vividly in our minds. We hear it. He quotes Psalm 14, no one is righteous, not even. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the crazy news. Romans chapter 4. That just as everybody is deemed as a sinner in God's sight, the pathway to righteousness for everyone is faith. Because Abraham, this truest tradition has always been marked by righteousness through faith from the days of Abraham. But faith in what? Romans chapter 5. Faith in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. And now we hear those invigorating words. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it and live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Then we get to chapter 6, 7, and 8, which gives commentary on what it means to associate with the old Adam and the new. Chapter 6 teaches us, under the old Adam, we are dominated by sin, and now we are ushered into a new way of living, resulting in holiness and eternal life. And then comes our chapter 8. Chapter 7. There are some questions in these Jewish people's minds. God had given through Moses the law, this way of relating to God. And they're like, is the law broken? Did it not work? Was there something deficient about the law? They've got a lot of questions. I do too. <laughs> and so that's where we find our text. Paul starts and he asks, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Did you hear that? There wasn't something broken with the law, but what the law did was it put a mirror in front of humanity and said, let's see what's actually there. There was something revelatory about the law. But it is interesting, isn't it? 
the text, Paul points us all the way back to the Ten Commandments. And he picks one of the Ten Commandments. And what commandment did he pick? You shall not covet. Why do you think he picked that one? It's the one commandment that deals with our affections. It's not just your behavior that's broken. For the stain of sin has seeped into the deepest part of your being. Even your affections have been twisted. New Testament scholar David Garland says this, Covetousness is connected to the longings of the body and can be considered the root of all sin. It puts the self at the center. It puts the self at the center. Does that sentence remind you of any stories within the Old Testament? It reminds me of Genesis chapter 3, the moment when sin broke into human history. It was the moment when humanity said, we don't want God to be God, we want to put ourselves in the center. We want the benefits of God without God himself. I want to put myself at this. What Paul artistically does after this is he weaves your story and my story into the story that it unfolds in the law of Moses. Genesis Deuteronomy. And he tells the story of sinful Adam and enslaved Israel. But he uses the first person pronoun, I. I, 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 I. Because what he's saying is this is my story and this is your story. So Paul goes on to say, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment, singular, came, do not eat from the tree of good and evil. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous. His story is the story of sinful Adam. And so is our story. But now he goes on to weave our stories in to enslaved Egypt. Listen to this. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin through the commandment um, might become sinful beyond measure. That image right there is us being crushed by our sin. A big boulder crushing us of our sinfulness. We don't have the agency to fix it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, I, for I do not do what I want, but I do everything I hate. Now, if I do what I want, do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing that is good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I I do not do the good I want, but the evil um, that I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see my members along, um, see my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Do you hear that inner tension? I can't do it. I can't break free from it. I am enslaved. I am a captive. I am just like enslaved Egypt. Or enslaved Israel under the oppression of Egypt. Paul weaves our story into the story of sinful Adam and into the story of enslaved Israel. And then Paul makes this claim as he's reflecting upon all of this reality, he says, wretched man that I am. That word wretched only shows up a few times in the New Testament, and it shows up only a few times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And every time it appears, it describes a misery that one cannot save themselves from. Paul says, wretched man, And then he poses our question this morning. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Karl Barth has this to say. He's got a lot to say. (laughs) Man will not deliver himself from this existence under the law of sin and death. Note how the two sections, 7 through 12 and 13 through 23, are dominated by the word I. No sentence beginning with that word could describe man, could describe man's liberation. The Christian I too, the Christian I particularly, must admit its own state of bondage. We are enslaved Israel. But as Paul reflects upon this question, who will deliver me? Who will break forth an exodus in my story? We hear these beautiful words. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Karl Barth goes on to say, There is no line that starts with I and finishes somewhere with salvation and liberty. But we are showed in in chapter 7, 1 through 6, there is another line which starts with Jesus Christ, in which the man who is subject to the law was killed, not in his own death, but in the death of Jesus Christ. 
He has been killed and therefore liberated from himself to live now for that other one, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead to serve the law of God in the new condition of the Spirit as a man who, was, who has been liberated and now fully subordinated to the other, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As Paul thinks about our reality, he points to Jesus. Our passage of Romans chapter 7 demands that we, Church of the Cross, be the kind of people who orient ourselves as utterly dependent upon God. We need a deliverer. We need a deliverer who can offer us an exodus from our sinful state. It is that very dependence upon God that leads to freedom and liberation that we so desperately long for. Now, I, I want to I pose a question to Church of the Cross this What would happen if we, Church of the Cross, became the kind of people who were consistently remembering and therefore operating out of our, under, our utter dependence upon God. How would that change us? How would that transform the way we approach God? How would it change the way we pray? How, and what we pray for? How would it change the way that we related to our neighbors? Or exercise works of faith and love in greater Boston. How would that change us? Jesus answers that question for us. And John, John recalls this moment in Jesus' life where he, he was at the festival of festivals for the Jewish people. And it's called the Festival of Booze. It was like Coachella of the Jewish life, right? <laughs> And on the last day, the great day, Jesus gets up and he just starts declaring something crazy. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Did you hear it? If we acknowledge our desperation before Jesus Christ, what will happen if we humble ourselves and come to God? Rivers of living water will pour forth out of our hearts. And, and he's, Jesus is pulling from Old Testament imagery of, of this river that flows out of the temple of the Lord, out from the presence of the Lord. And, and the prophet Ezekiel declares this about this river. That everything will live where the water goes. What happens to Church of the Cross when we orient ourselves as desperate creatures? We become sources of life in every single place we go. So there are two things. I want to invite us into to be this kind of people. The first thing is we have to address our privilege. 
And the second thing is we have to attentively practice our dependence upon the Lord. Church of the Cross, we know this about ourselves. We are highly educated. Most of us, a lot of people here, are upper middle class, white, cisgendered, able-bodied American citizens. Many of us in here fit into that category. The world, the world we live in, was built for people like us. And because the world was built for people like us, we experience the world in a unique and particular way that places lenses over our eyes and how we understand the world to be. And it creates an immunity for us that we are able to escape many of life's harshest realities. And because we have this immunity, it colors the way that we orient ourselves in the world and how we orient ourselves in relationship to God. And the great lie that this immunity begins to form us and teach us is that we are self-sustaining, independent creatures. We're self-sufficient. Church of the Cross, nothing will kill our relationship with God faster than believing we are self-sustaining. And nothing will crush our church faster than when we begin to believe that we are self-sustaining, independent creatures. So first, we need to acknowledge our privilege. The second thing that we need to do is attentively practice our dependence. So, with me, will you join me this week? I'm going to try this, and I want to see how it changes my life. This week, morning, afternoon, evening, like good Anglicans, <laughs> let us pray this prayer. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Lord, I desperately need you. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.